Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, Purim is coming up, and Purim really is the the epicenter of understanding this world and our lives and the human condition and everything like that. So anytime we're talking about Purim, and I want to try to really address some of, for me anyway, some of the, the deeper aspects of it, um, we're really talking about life itself and um, this world and the next and all the rest. So I want to bring you a, a bunch of teachings and that all seem to coalesce around the same point and around the same dynamic. And interestingly, they're all sort of based on Parsha Tetzaveh, um, which is always the Parsha that we're reading um, uh, at Purim time. And you'll see really within the dynamics of the word Tetzaveh and what's going on in terms of that, um, you'll really see like a lot of, a lot of the, the Purim story and, and all sorts of things, all sorts of things. Um, so... So I want to begin to approach the subject of Purim. Uh, just we'll, we'll, we'll kind of uh, approach it from a few different angles, and I'm just going to throw out some questions and all the rest. You see, one of the big questions is when you think about life, when you think about your life, when you try to understand the nature of, of truth, if you will, when do you begin your approach? Meaning to say, do you start your understanding of the world from the time that you were born, looking at the world and trying to understand everything that you've learned? Or do you approach your concept of reality from before the world was created itself? In other words, in other words, there are certain things that if you just say, okay, you know what, this is what I think, this is how I feel, this is who I am, that's all great. But all that is tremendously subjective. Or is it rooted in before the world was created? Meaning to say, I can't just take for granted the fact that there's a world and that I'm in it and that I'm part of it and that God had a plan for the world itself before he created it and that has everything to do with me. Right? So in other words... What perspective are you approaching life and reality and the world? Is it just for, okay, I'm a guy, I want this, I'm a woman, I want that, this is who I am, this is where I'm from, this is what I can stand, this is what I can't stand. In other words, all that is a very sort of like my, 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 myopic, very myopic um, way of viewing the world. Or are you approaching it from the fact that, wait a second, I can be in a good mood or in a bad mood, but this is what needs to be done. This is what's real. This is what's not real. Okay, that's, that's one question. Now, you see, and when you think about the creation of the world, let's say, okay, you know something, I want to be more broad-minded. If I really want to understand the truth, I have to understand what was this whole thing created for? If I want to go back to the beginning of creation, what is the beginning of creation? So a lot of people think of the beginning of creation of there's darkness, and then God said, Vayahi, or let there be light. So really, the real truth of everything is darkness, but then God said, let there be light. All right? But that's not actually what our religion says. That's not what the Torah says at all. What the Torah says is that God existed before the world was created. 
And you have a, a, a special name for God describing the state of God before the world was created, which is the or in sof, light without end. So the starting point for the world is not darkness. The starting point for the world is actually tremendous light. And then God created this realm, this dimension that we call this world, that we call life, and he wanted to give us free choice. And in order to give us free choice, he had to create darkness. So darkness is actually a creation, and then within that darkness, he creates light. And now we have a free choice, we can choose. God can see, what do we want to do? How do we want to react and respond to the challenge of life and living? Do we want to see him? Do we not want to see him? God is going to give us free choice. But again, the point that I'm making is that, that if a person actually wants to, you see, be grounded in reality, they have to just see past their immediate needs and they have to think more globally about why there was a world to begin with. So let me give you sort of just a kind of a, a silly example of what I'm talking about, just, just in case we're not communicating. Okay? Imagine, imagine a person goes to, um, you know, an Italian restaurant, right? And what do they do? They, they go, oh, you know something? The waiter comes and they order sushi, right? And the guy says, we don't serve sushi. This is an Italian restaurant. And the guy gets very, very angry. What do you mean? Uh, uh, I'm paying a lot of money. How much do you want for the sushi? We don't have sushi. It's an Italian restaurant. Okay. So, so what's going on here? The person doesn't understand where they are. They have what they feel is a very legitimate need. They want sushi. But they're in the wrong place. They don't know where they are. So that's a lot of people with this world. They begin with the consciousness that they're already in the restaurant and they already have their need and everything like that. And they see that the world is not responding to their immediate needs and they get very angry. But meanwhile, they don't know where they are. People don't understand the initial, the initial thought that has to go into an approach to life, which is, where am I? Why is there a world to begin with? And what role am I playing in it as the next step? Okay. So Purim, Purim is getting into this in the deepest way. Because you see, Purim and Pesach intersect at their inception. At Purim's, at, at Purim's inception, it's Pesach. So let me just explain to you what I, what I just said. You see, a lot of people are very confused about the timeline of Purim, okay? But, but if you actually read the Megillah carefully, and these are not Midrashim that I'm talking to you about right now, these are actually in the text of Megillus Esther itself. The dates are all laid out in Megillus Esther, what I'm telling you right now, okay? So this is not subject to interpretation. This is the story that I'm telling you. We celebrate Purim in the month of Adar, so people think that the, that, that, the, that the climax of the Purim story is the killing of Haman, right? Which there, you can make an argument that that's the climax of the Purim story, right? 
and that and that the great victory, the rescinding of the decree of of the uh, that the Jews should be eradicated, all of that happened in in Adar, right? That that's that's what we're celebrating. Okay, so so it's actually not really like that so much. It's partially true, partially not true. Really, what happened was Haman's decree was actually made in Nisan, which is the month of Pesach. And the whole wine fest and the whole hanging of Haman took place on Pesach. That when they were having those wine fests and 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 and, and Esther was setting up the whole dynamics for exposing Haman's plot and Haman's defeat and Haman being hung and the Jews were fasting, they were fasting during Pesach. It's an amazing thing that the Jews didn't eat matzah. Like, it's, a, it's one of the 613 commandments. It's a mitzvah der reisa. You have to eat matzah on Pesach night. And, and, and you know, and it was Esther, you know, it was Esther who said, everyone's got to fast. Now, if you want to see an example, I can't think of a better example of how prized um, the Jewish woman is in, in Torah than the fact that you had Mordechai, who's the head of the generation, the head of the Sanhedrin, which is the, you know, the Torah court, and he himself was, you know, one of the greatest people ever. Esther tells him, we have to fast during Pesach. No one's going to eat matzah. No one's going to drink the wine, right? And Mordecai goes, yeah, you're right. This is what we're doing. Like, this is, this is major. I mean, if you want to talk about just on a halachic level, this is like crazy major. And again, shows you the great prominence that, that women have. You know, if you just need one example, that's, that's a pretty good one. But the point is this. So we see that, that on Pesach, Haman gets defeated. And that's what we're really celebrating on Purim. And then, but you see, he had his, he had his decree that had been sent out. And that was supposed to take place. The eradication of the Jews was supposed to take place approximately 11 months later. Right? So 11 months later... They figured out how to reverse the letter, which was sealing the end to Jews everywhere. They were able to send another letter. And then they have the war where the enemies of the Jews are, are wiped out, you know, or the, 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 the core of them anyway. And then that's why we're celebrating, because that's the, that's the end of the story. That's what we're, that's what we're celebrating um, on Purim. And that's why Purim is an Adar, and not with the hanging of Haman and his sons, which was actually in Nisan, on Pesach. Okay, hopefully that, that was clear. Okay, but, but I'm making a larger point right now. The larger point that I'm making is that, is that isn't it interesting that Purim, as we popularly understand it, which is really the finishing off of Haman, isn't that interesting that Purim happens on Pesach? And what does that mean philosophically? Because, you see, Purim and Pesach represent two opposite ends of the spectrum of miracles. Pesach represents open miracles. Purim represents concealed miracles. Okay, now I'm going to tell you how to understand, like, the B'nai Yisachar, 
one of the greatest Hasidic masters, gives an explanation. He gives a mushal, he gives a parable, explaining the nature of the miracle of Purim. Right? And it's just something that you can really think about, because this is, this is the B'nai Yisachar who's saying this over, okay? So one of our, our greatest tzaddikim is giving you this example. So it's really, worth, it's really worth thinking about for the rest of your life, basically, you know? Just because it's, it's very subtle, it's very subtle, but it's, at the same time, it's very deep. So he says, imagine there's a person who's sick in bed and who's dying. And a doctor comes up to him and says, you know something? There is, uh, there is a medicine. There is a medicine. It's this um, herb, basically. But it's only available in China. And from, by the time that we get you this herb from China, and by the way, he, the B'nai Yisachar, this is, you know, in the 1800s, he, he said China, right? Which is just interesting, just that he used that example. He said, by the time we get you this herb from China, you know, I'm sorry to say, you're not going to be around, right? Because it's a long, it's a long trip to bring that thing in. Just then there's a knock at the door and someone says, you're not going to believe it. A ship just pulled in from China and it's got the herb. And they give him the herb, he gets better. He says, that's, that's the miracle of poor. Did you see, did the, did, did the ship fly through the air? Was there, did, the, did, the guy, did the doctor snap his fingers and all of a sudden in his palm the medicine appeared? No, nothing. Nothing openly miraculous. Nothing openly miraculous. But you see how God is guiding the world behind the scenes and doing stuff in front of our very eyes, which is totally miraculous, and we're not seeing it at all. So, but then you have another type of miracle. You have the level of Pesach miracles, right? Pesach miracles are basically the Red Sea is splitting, right? It's darkness for the Egyptians, and the darkness is palpable. It's so thick, people can't get out of their chairs because the darkness is literally holding them in their chairs. I mean, that's frightening. And a Jew walks into the room, and it's simultaneously light for the Jew in the exact same room that it's this palpable, thick darkness for the Egyptian. Right? These are, these are incredible open miracles. So now, what is Purim? And remember, Purim is one of the days the Rambam says, one of the holidays that we're going to be celebrating still when Mashiach comes. Some of the other holidays, many of the, most of the other holidays are not going to be applicable. Purim is still going to be applicable, even after Mashiach comes, okay? So now, in Purim, and Purim is just like basically every day. That's why we can study Purim all year long, because Purim is really the gateway into understanding how God runs the world. So Purim is, on the most superficial level, just the normal, quote-unquote, operating of human events, but God made Purim happen on Pesach, which is openly miraculous. So what's the point? Here's the point. What we call the mundane is openly miraculous. That's the point. That's the intersection of Purim and Pesach. It's to tell us 
that all of those things, which just look like, oh, I just ran into him at the supermarket, I haven't seen him, and he just happened to, ah! openly miraculous. Even though you don't see people flying through the air and things like that, all of reality is openly miraculous. That's the intersection of Purim and Pesach. That's why Purim happens on Pesach. Okay. So now, now I want to show you in the Parsha where you see a lot of these things coming together, this intersection, okay? And I'm really going to highlight the word Tetzaveh because that's the, that's the Parsha that we're reading every Purim, basically. So remember, as, as the Lubavitcher Rebbe is famously quoted as, but everyone says it, which is that if you want to know really what's going on in the world, you look in the Parsha of the week. The Parsha of the week is going to tell you what's going on in the world. And I heard Rabbi Wolfson say it even more poetically. He says that the fabric of reality of the week is actually weaved from the letters of the Parsha of the week. Okay, so, so obviously Tetzavah is holding like a lot of the secrets and the fabric of Purim. Okay, so let's take a look at that and then we'll really be able to see something. So the first thing is... The first thing is the fact that from the beginning of the book of Exodus, Sefer Shmos, right, all the way to the end of the Torah, Sefer Shmos marks the birth of Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, our teacher, right? He's born in the beginning of Exodus. From that, from that point to the end of the Torah, Moshe is mentioned multiple times in every single Parsha except one. There's only one Parsha that Moshe's name is absent from, and that's Parsha's Tetzavah. So again, we're getting into the depths of what it means to be a human being, of what it means to be in this world, because Moshe is the one who delivers the word of God. And what happened in Purim? It really looked like God was completely absent, God was gone, that we had severed our connection with him. So isn't it interesting that that's reflected in the Parsha itself? Because Moshe is not mentioned, right? So, 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 but let's go deeper. Let's go deeper. So the Vilna Gon points out something unbelievable. He says, you know something? There's a very interesting hint to Moshe, where Moshe really is present in the Parsha. Where do you see it? So I don't know if you're familiar with this, but at the end of every single Parsha in the Torah, if you look in like a Chumash, right, in a Torah book, you'll see there's a little number at the end of every Parsha. And what that tells you is the number of verses, the number of psukim in that week's portion. Okay? So the number of verses in the, uh, the portion of, of Tetzaveh, right, is 101. Now, what's meaningful about that? So the Vilna Gon, right, one of our, our greatest, greatest, greatest geniuses, right, he, he points out that if you do a special form of gematria <coughs> called melui, what, what does that mean? That means that you're taking, you're taking um, the word itself, Moshe, and you're spelling out each of the letters. So, Mem, Shin, and He. 
So let's spell out the letter Mem. So it's Mem Mem. Shin is Shin Yud Nun. And He is He Aleph. Okay? Now, Melui means that which fills something. So what we want to do is, like, imagine if you could quantify the inside of something. Right? Like the essence of something. So how would you go about quantifying, putting a number on the inside of something? Right? That seems something that's so intangible, right? But in, we have a Torah approach to how to do that. So what we do is we knock out the external layer and we just add up the internal layer. So what we'll do is we'll take the letters, if Moshe, if you, the way you spell Moshe is just Mem, Shin, Shin, He. We'll take out those letters and we'll take out and we'll count the remaining letters of how you spell out the inside of the letters, right? So for instance, so for Mem, we'll knock out the first Mem, but we'll keep the inside, we'll keep the second Mem. For Shin, we'll knock out the letter Shin, but we'll keep the, the remaining Yud and Nun, how you spell that, okay? For He, we'll knock out the He, but we'll keep the Aleph, the spelling of the rest of the letter He. And if you add up the inside of Moshe, it's 101, which is the exact number of verses in Parshas Tetzava, where he's supposedly not mentioned at all. In other words, he's there, but he's not there. He's there, but he's not there. God is here. Ah, but I can't see him, but he's here. But it's a poor miracle. It just looks like there's a knock at the door and there just happened to be a ship that came in. Oh no, but it's a total miracle. He's completely there. He was guiding all the forces and saving the person while before he was even diagnosed. He was bringing all the forces of creation together to save the person. But I didn't see him, but he was there. Right? This is how God guides reality. I'll give you another example. You know, the fact is, is that, is, is, is that it says, the beginning of the Parsha says, Ve'ata titzave, and you shall command the Jews. Who is you? Who is Va'ata? Who is you? You is Moshe. God is speaking to Moshe. So he is referring to him, not by name, not by name, but in this form of Atta, you. Okay? So, so let's, let's go deeper. You see, because remember, all of this is... Um, all of this is, a, uh, is an analog, understanding how even when we think God isn't there, God is there. You see? You see, what are the, what are the dynamics of, of this Parsha? It begins by talking about the light. We have to light the menorah, and it tells us how to make the oil for the menorah in order to light everything up. But then what does it go on to talk about for the most of the Parsha? The clothes. What do clothes do? They conceal and they cover up. In other words, you have the initial light, but then you're covering it up. What did we talk about in terms of the creation of the world itself? We have the initial light, the orange self, the initial light of creation. But then we have creation, like the clothing, the garment, covering up the light. But God is there, but God is concealed, but he's there. He's never not there. You see, a lot of people think, and I'm talking about spiritual people, but I want to bring you to 
what I think is the fundamental breakthrough that any person who's serious about living a, an enlightened life has to make this breakthrough, okay? And it's the following. The problem is, or I should say the challenge is, and people don't even have insight into this, so let me just give you the insight at least. People think of God as an idea. They think of God as a concept. And this is one of the greatest things that we have to uproot and fight against. You see, especially in our own individual lives. You see, you, a person can think the following. Listen, listen, listen carefully. They can think, there's a God, and he's good, and he created the entire world, and he gave us the Torah, and every letter of the Torah is true, and I have to live the, the Torah, right? And it's just an idea. <laughs> they can have the grandest, most religious thoughts in the entire world, and it's just an idea. And they can be saying everything right, everything that you would ever hope that someone would say. But it's just an idea. It's not the reality that they're living in. They don't understand that. They say that there's a God that's an idea, you know. But I'm living within God. That God saturates all of reality and all of creation. And I'm literally immersed within God. And that every one of my actions, every one of my interactions are an ongoing conversation with God. And that everything is miraculous. Purim and Pesach completely intersecting. The concealed and the revealed. That the concealed is the revealed. So let's go further. So someone was telling me that they were at um, the grave, the, the, the kever, the gravesite of, of, the, of the wife, the holy wife, Rachel, <coughs> Rachel of uh, Rabbi Akiva, right? And Rabbi Akiva's wife, Rabbi Akiva said that all of the Torah that I have and all the students that I have, it's all because of my wife, okay? And so, so her gravesite is known, and it's in Israel, and people visit it. And um, someone was telling me that, there, there was a, that they went to pray there, and that there was a, a Kabbalist there. And the Kabbalist, it was Rosh Chodesh, and the Kabbalist was throwing a party. And, um, and he told this story to the people there. He said, listen, he says, if, you're ever, if you ever feel like you're in, in trouble, right? or you're scared, or something like this, and you, and you want to, so to speak, summon the presence of God, right? He says, say a, a bracha, say a blessing. And, 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 and he explained it in the following way. Because when you say a blessing, like let's say you just grab some water, whatever it is, you, you want some extra protection at that moment, say. So you grab some water, say, or whatever it is, and you make a blessing, you say, baruch atah, right? We're still talking about the word atah. Baruch Atah, blessed are you. Atah is talking about the revelation of God in an open way. And so since you're saying Baruch Atah, which means you, that's, that's like, we're not talking about an idea right now. We're talking about something that's right in front of your face, that that brings down God in a more revealed way. Because since you're saying Atah, God has to, and, and you, you have to be speaking the truth because this is, this is a blessing, right? And you're commanded to say this before you're drinking whatever it is or eating whatever it is. Baruch Atta, 
The fact that you're talking about this open level of God's revelation, that God himself has to correspond to that and become more openly revealed at that moment and more present. See, the very fact that God allows us to say the word Atta, you, to have that, so to speak, face-to-face relationship with him is amazing. Amazing. And in your davening, try to have special kavana, special awareness when you're saying the word Atta, because that's a level of intimacy that God is handing us, which is like amazing. He's giving us like, it's sort of like, okay, look, this is the number I give everyone else. Here's my private cell. You know what I mean? It's sort of like, Atta is God's private cell, so to speak. You know, here you go. Here, this is for you. And then, you know, dial it up whenever, whenever you want me. So, 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 Atta, you, means this open level of revelation. Okay, now I want to tell you a Torah that came to me, the Shabbos, I was happy. Okay, so let's look at the word Tetzava. Okay? You see, remember, what did we say? What did we say? That, um, that every Purim, and that Purim is the intersection, right? The Purim is the intersection of the concealed and the revealed, right? That every Purim, we're reading this Parsha, Tetzava, so Tetzava has to hold, like, all the dynamics of Purim. It has to. So if you, let's arrange the letters of Tetzave, the name of the week's Parsha, in two groups, okay? It's four letters. Let's make it Tav and Vav and Sadi and He. All right? We'll just make it into two groups, those four letters, okay? Now, do you know Sadi and He is 95? Do you know what that's the gematria of? Haman. All right? And do you know what Taf and Vav is the gematria of Atta. <laughs> so here we have the revealed and the concealed together. We have the enemy of the Jews hinted at in Parshas Tetzava in the name itself, Sadi and He, which is 95, which is Haman. And in the same word itself, we have the word Atta, which is the open revelation of God. Coexisting together. Not only that, but Atta, we said earlier, is referring to who? To Moshe. Right? So, and who, who brings this battle against Amalek in the Torah? Moshe. So we have the battle against Amalek right here in the word Tetzaveh. Not only that, not only that, but the B'nai Yisachar brings something just unbelievable. Right? He says, he says that if you look at the end of Parshas Beshalach, right? And this is one of the, the classic verses in the whole Torah. This is, um, if you want to see it, you should, you should see it. You should definitely have this one carved into your bones. And chapter 17, verse number um, 16. And it says about the war against Amalek, it says, for the hand is on the throne of God. Hashem maintains a war against Amalek. And we know Haman is, is, is the Iker Klippa, is the essence of Amalek from generation to generation. And when it's talking about the word, the throne of God, it's spelled incompletely. It's spelled Kes Ka, 
It should say, it should say, Kisei Hashem. But it doesn't. So the idea is that as long as a Malik exists, as long as evil exists, the fullness of God is not revealed. So the throne of God, so to speak, is not spelled in its complete form. It's spelled incompletely because as long as there's evil, the fullness of God, the fullness of his oneness is not fully revealed. So now listen to this. The B'nai Yisachar says, the gematria of Kes Ka, which means the incomplete spelling of the throne of Hashem. Kes Ka is gematria 95, which is Haman. <laughs> amazing. This is amazing. And who is Amalek descended from? Who is Haman? It's, it's the gematria of Haman. Who is descended from Amalek, which is what the verse is talking about. And that the war goes on in every generation. So, so let's, let's continue. You see, a lot of people, and now I'm talking again about people who are really trying. People who are really trying and, you know something, we, 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 we all go through periods in our life. Hopefully they're not long periods. Um, God willing, and we should be saved from them if, if, if we're in the middle of them now, you know. Um, but we all go through periods of our life where it just looks like God isn't there. And, um, and then, God willing, we get rescued and we go, oh, God, you saved me. Okay, uh, now God is here. God wasn't there, but now God is here, right? So we have to get away from that level of thinking because God is always there. It's just that sometimes he's covered up. But that's a very important thing to have in mind. If a person is going through a difficult period, it's not chas v'shalom, God forbid, that God isn't there. God is always there. It's just that it might be covered up. And, and that, that's, that's empowering to us because we understand that his presence is there even in a hard time. I'll tell you something. I just saw this Torah from the Kutzke Rebbe, an amazing Torah like this. You, like you can tremble if you think about this Torah. We know that the month of hardships for the Jewish people is the month of Av. That's when the temples were destroyed and also Spanish Inquisition, World War I, which led right into World War II, which is the Holocaust. Everything happened on, in the month of Av, on, on Tisha B'Av, you know. So Av you know, perplexingly, is also a Hebrew word, which means father. So you're telling me that the headquarters of all of this stuff, all this pain, is, is happening in the month called father? So to explain this, the Kutzke Rebbe gives something in his classic way, so short and so piercing. He says, you know, if you're in shul, right? You're in synagogue and you see someone caressing the face of a child. You can't be sure that that man is the child's father. Right? Because you have a cute boy, sweet boy, you know, and someone wants to show affection, show love, he strokes the face. It's nice. You can't be sure that the person is his father. 
But if you're in shul and you see a grown man slaps the face of a child, then you can absolutely be sure that it's the father. That's whoa. <laughs> that, that is. In other words, you know, I have the chills saying it. But you understand that it's coming from a place of love, ultimately. That that discipline is coming from a place of love. And that in a way, there's an, I, I dare to use the word, an intimacy to that love coming in that place because it's only coming from a place of caring and trying to correct and put the person on, it, on, on the proper path. So, so, so now I want to just transition for a moment and I want to talk about uh, a, an amazing medrash that I saw from Esther Rabbah um, uh, about, uh, about prayer, about Mordecai. And again, I think that this very much comes to, to address really Purim, but also the human condition that it's speaking about. Because remember, what if we need to summarize Purim in one sentence? What's, what, what's, let's put Purim in just one sentence, okay? What is Purim? When you think that God isn't there, it turns out that he was there the entire time. That, that's Purim. That's Purim. Okay, so now listen to this. Um, like I said, this is from the Medrash from Esther Rabbah, chapter 7, number 13, okay? It says, I'll read it to you, then I'll explain it to you. Mordechai knew that the prophesied 70 years of the Babylonian Empire had ended, but redemption was nowhere in sight. Even so, he prayed. Mordechai also knew that Haman's plan would fail, even so, he prayed. All right, let me just explain that just in case, uh, just in case uh, you're not with me. After the first temple was destroyed, there was a prophecy among um, the Jews that they would return back to Israel after 70 years in, in Babel, in Babylonia. Okay? Now, the way that you count those 70 years is very intricate because it was really the 70 years of how long someone was king and then you had to figure out how long into the year they had actually served in order to count it as a king, to, to be counted as a year for that king, and then there were more than one king during that period. So it was very hard to count the years. And people were counting the years because they were like sort of like dreading the fulfillment of this prophecy. Remember, this is the very first exile of the Jewish people from the land of, from the land of Israel. So the Jews as a, as a world power, like it was very you know, like very resonant in the world. And the idea that, you know, something, we're going back to Israel, they wanted to know what this 70-year clock was. They took it very seriously. And when they thought that the 70 years was over, they were throwing parties in Babylonia. That was what the feast of Ahasuerus was all about. Okay? It was celebrating the fact that the 70-year count had come and gone, the Jews hadn't been redeemed, and that's game over for the Jews. As a people. You see, now with this in mind, you can understand a, a question that I had, maybe, maybe um, you had this question too, which is, how could it be, how could it be that, that you know, when the, when the um, sages explain why this heavenly decree of eradicating the Jews came down, there are a couple of different opinions that are given. Each one is more fascinating than the other. One is that they attended the feast of Ahasuerus. 
And it's even said that there was kosher food at this feast. So with this in mind, you think to yourself, wait a second, God, really? Okay, maybe we shouldn't have attended this feast, but you're going to wipe out the whole Jewish people for attending this feast? That, does, does that make sense? Right? Is that, is that as we say, mida keneged mida? Is that measure for measure? Like, how does, how, what is the divine logic behind that? And the answer is that what was being celebrated at that feast was the destruction of the Jewish people. So with this in mind, now you can understand, wait a second, you're attending a party that's celebrating the end of your peoplehood? So what do I need you for? Now, now at least the, the level of justice makes sense, okay? Now, now I'll tell you another opinion, okay? In, in, uh, in, uh, in Masech to Megillah, right? Which is, as the Jews were being led out of Israel into, into their, their servitude, their, their exile in Babylonia, there was this huge, giant, like ancient, crazy statue of Nebuchadnezzar, right? Like making him like a god. And they made the Jews bow down before this god, so to speak, quote-unquote. And the Jews didn't want to do it, but they were, you know, they were in a pretty low place right now, you know? So we were in a, we were in a very low place right now. So they, they did bow, okay? But they only pretended to bow, okay? So now listen to this. This can <coughs> really give you the chills. So they say, you know what? Okay, yeah. So, so... You know what's going on with the whole decree of destruction of the Jewish people? Oh, just like you only pretended to bow, God only did, pretended to destroy you. So, again, it gives me the chills to think about, you know? Um, so, so now let's revisit this medrash from, from Esther Rabbah. Now you can understand what this whole idea of the 70 years is. So it says, according to this Medrash, even Mordechai thought that the 70 years had passed and that the Jews hadn't been redeemed. And it says, even so he prayed. That's, that's intense. That's intense. Because he could have thought, you know what? We weren't worthy or whatever, his, whatever Mordechai would have thought. You know, it's, it's not happening. So, what do I have to pray for? So, so, he says, no. Even so, he prayed. Then it says, he knew Haman would fail. Even so, he prayed. So now, let me tell you why this speaks to me so much. Because I think this is the story of our lives in a lot of ways. There are times in our lives where we think, this thing that I want, whatever it is, it's never going to happen. So God has already told me it's not going to happen. So why should I pray? Why should I pray? No, still pray. You're convinced? You're convinced it's not going to happen? Don't stop praying. How about this other side of your life where, you know what? It's in the bag. I got it. I know. I know the people. It's, it's happening. The, 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 we already set up the meeting for the papers to be signed. It's, it's happening. It's happening. I, it's in the bag. Still pray. He knew Haman would fail. 
Still he prayed. So this is us. In those times where we've given up, don't stop praying. And in those times when you think you don't have to pray anymore, don't stop praying. So, so I, I just want to tell you something, you know. I heard in the name of the Sansa Rebbe, maybe from Rabbi Green, I, ne- I, I never saw it in a book. He, he told it to me one time, maybe 20 years ago, I don't know, but it stayed with me. He said that the students of the Sansa Rebbe, like the Hasidim, like, you know, on the way to show one time, they said to the Rebbe, they said, you know, what do you do before you pray? And he said, I pray. <laughs> right? So, I, I was saying over that teaching yesterday, I said it either two times or I said it three times. I don't know. And then I, I have a little thing on Shabbos after lunch. I, I take a nap, you know. I try to anyway. And I always just take a, a book. And, you know, I'll, I don't have any expectations how far I'm going to get, but maybe I can get through at least half the first sentence <laughs> before I fall asleep. <laughs> a page would be a lot for me to, to actually get through, but, you know, whatever it is. So I took a book that I don't think I've ever taken to, 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 to read, to learn, before I took a nap on Shabbos. I just took this book, and I just opened it up, because, you know, a lot of these things you just can open them up anywhere because it's all teachings. So I open it up and I open it up. It's, I open up to the page of the Sansa Rebbe. You know, and I just said this, you know, teaching from him. That, like I say, I heard maybe 20 years ago or whatever it is, like two times, maybe three times. And I was like on the page of the Sansa Rebbe. I thought, oh, that's so interesting, you know. And then I start reading a little bit and I thought, you know, so what's the Sansa Rebbe saying, you know. And I read a teaching, I thought, oh, that's interesting. And I'm about to go to sleep. But I say, oh, I'm still awake. I read one more teaching. So I read one more teaching. Oh, that's very interesting, too. Again, I'm about to go to sleep. Then on the same page, I see one more teaching. It says, the Hasidim of the Sanzer Rebbe were walking with him as he's on his way to pray. And they ask him, what do you do before you pray? And he says, I pray. I've never seen this in a book. I'm open to this page in the book. Hashem is so close. Hashem is so close. Hashem is listening so carefully that Sadiqim and Shamayim, the holy ones in Shamayim, are praying so intensely for all of us. They're so close. They're so close. Like it says in the Gomorrah, like two hairs on the same head. Right? Or like if you put one cup within another cup, you stack cups. Right? The next dimension is immersed within this dimension. That's the, that's the imagery the Gomorrah gives us. It's so close. It's so close. And God, meanwhile, fills the entire thing. So, if you want to understand the world, you can't understand it from the standpoint of, I want sushi in an Italian restaurant. 
why do why haven't I gotten this and why haven't I gotten that and I want this and I want that and everything like that and everything begins everything begins in terms of my understanding of of the world and my responsibilities and everything like that everything begins with me and whatever I think and whenever I was born and starting from me and everything like that if you want to be wise if you want to have wisdom if you want to have truth you have to begin from the very, very, very beginning. Why is there a world? What am I doing in this world? What does God want from me? Did God just make me and abandon me? So Purim is telling us, Purim says, I was born on Pesach. (laughs) Purim is telling you that this thing that looks so normal is utterly, openly miraculous. Purim is the concealed. Pesach is the revealed. It's telling us that the concealed is the revealed. The concealed is the revealed. Meaning to say, how is any of this even going on? How am I even standing here and even thinking thoughts? How is this even possible that your chair isn't like flying off the planet Earth and hurtling into the sun right now? How is any of this happening? And the answer is it's 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 miraculous. It's all miraculous. Even amidst this illusion of nature and abandonment. But don't dare think, okay, so God was here, and now now God's gone, now God's back. It doesn't work like that. God never leaves. And remember what the Baal Shem Tov says. The Alter Rebbe brings it. That God is as present in this world, in this dimension, as he is in the highest spiritual realms of Atsilas. He's equally present here. The fact that we can't perceive him as openly, that's by design. And that's our issue. But it's not God's issue. God is equally here. And remember what the Katzka Rebbe said. If you see a child in shul and someone, right, is caressing his face, it's not proof that that's the child's father. But if you see the child slapping the, the you see the, the 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 man slapping the face of the child, that's it can only be the father. It can only be the father. Right? So the idea that we go through a difficulty in life is not a contradiction to God's goodness or God's presence or God's love for us. And we can't allow ourselves to fall into those traps of thinking that way. God is literally rearranging creation, rearranging creation at all times to correspond to what we need the most, whether we're aware of it or not. It's not just that God is on our side and God is rooting for us. God is literally rearranging creation from a moment-to-moment basis to correspond to where we're holding individually and as a people. 
And so with that in mind, let's just do good. Let's just be good. Let's just be more loving. Let's just be more caring. Let's just be more supportive. And let's just treasure every single interaction that we have. Amen. Okay, good poor. Good poor. Yeah.